0: of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who takes refuge in him. This psalm, Psalm 2, was a coronation psalm. It was the psalm that was, that was sung whenever a new Descendant of David would ascend to the throne in Jerusalem. When a a new king was enshrined, they would sing this song because you notice a couple things about this. There's the anointed one. So, why do the nations rage the people's plot in vain against the Lord and against the anointed one? So, what this means is when a new king of Israel would ascend to the throne, they would be anointed as the king of Israel. The word in the Greek is Christos, the word in the Hebrew would be the Messiah. The, 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 the anointed Davidic king now is coming into his throne. And what we're seeing in the psalm is that there's a, there's, a, there's a battle going on, raging, of this godly king and the nations around them. Okay, so this is, this is setting the Davidic king up over and against the nations of the world. And you can see that God has established this king. This king is established by the Lord to reign from Mount Zion. It says, the Lord is saying in the psalm, I have anointed, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, Zion being the city of David. But verse 7 is where, verse 7 is where in each generation that promise given to David in 2 Samuel is realized in the throne of a new Davidic king as the Lord says, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Now remember, this is spoken of an earthly king, a human king, the descendant of David, but yet here he is called the Son of God, the begotten Son of God. This is a royal title given to the king of Israel. As Israel is set apart as a kingdom of priests, as that that priest of whom Yahweh alone, the Lord alone, is the great king, the king, the human king reigning over Israel is given the title, God's son. But the important thing is, this this sonship is connected to a unique inheritance. Look at the inheritance that the, the title, son of God, is connected to. The next verse, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You'll break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here's the unique thing. None of David's sons ever came into this inheritance. This was the inheritance that was prophesied by Jacob and was prophesied last week by Balaam. That all the nations that that, that this, this king from Judah was gonna reign over the nations of the earth. Here now again, it's stated in Psalm two, that a son of David, the son of God, given the title of the son of God, is going to come into inheritance where he's going to, to reign over all of the nations. And that doesn't ever happen. And that's the genius of this psalm. The psalm could be sung at any of the king's coronations in the light of David, but this psalm is looking for a fulfillment the psalm is looking for a king coming from David. Who is going to receive as his inheritance the rule over not only Israel, but over all the nations of the earth. And so we could sing this whenever a child, whenever a son, oh sorry, not a child, but whenever a descendant of David would come into his throne, we could sing this. But we're still looking for the, con- the consummation, the fulfillment of this king from David who's going to come and reign over all of the nations of the earth. That's the inheritance that this son is to ask God the Father of. And so the, Psalm, the promise in Psalm 2 is that one day there will be a son of David who reigns over not only Jerusalem but all the nations. And therefore the kings of the earth would be wise to give honor and esteem to all of the sons of David and particularly to that son when he comes. And so Psalm 2, an anointed one who reigns from Zion as God's son will one day rule the nation. We're gonna move on to Psalm 8, because Psalm 8 picks up on this theme of inheritance and the scope of this, this king's rule. The Psalm 8, a humble a humble son of Adam is appointed heir of all things. So Psalm 8, man, is that like do you know if they can do something about this feedback? Sorry. Maybe turn the game down. That was a little too much. Psalm 8, you guys know, Psalm 8, I'll read the beginning. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name on all the earth. When you have set your glory above the heavens, out of mouth and babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have put into place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? This psalm, Psalm 8, can be read as a reflection like any of us. We can go outside and you can look at nature, right? O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars that you have set into place, this part of this psalm can be read as any of us going out on a beautiful night in Canada, viewing the northern lights, and looking out at the heavens and going, wow, God, you are immense, you are awesome, and, and being overwhelmed by creation declaring the glory of God. And when you consider the vastness of the universe, when you consider that even the stars visible to the naked eye are uncountable, and then there are stars beyond what we can see, the, the psalmist is, is overcome with an awe going, God, why is it and how can it be that you would care for lowly humanity, that we're, we're just a speck traveling on a, you know, on a, on a speck of stardust. That's, that's who we are. And he's looking at the heavens going, wow, God, why and how would you be mindful of me? But look at the, the rest of the psalm. The rest of the psalm connects it to this inheritance. And this inheritance is more than just ruling over the nations of the earth. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you should care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you've put all things under his feet. And so this speaks to an inheritance that's even greater than Psalm 2. Psalm 2 spoke of a Davidic king that would come and that would reign over the nations. Psalm 8 speaks to a a lowly son of Adam, a humble son of Adam, a humble human who would be given dominion and inheritance over everything, that all things would be placed under the feet of this human. And notice that the, the words, the, the tense doesn't just speak to um, humanity in general. He says, you have made him a little lower. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet so that there's one particular being, human, who's going to come and going to have his inheritance, not only the Davidic promise, the Davidic throne, But the promise given to humanity that we would be ruling over all creation, all things would be put under his feet. And so we're left to wonder, who is this person who's going to come to whom all this inheritance is going to be given? And then we get to Psalm 24, which might this week have become my favorite psalm. Psalm 24, this is where we started today the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and those who dwell therein he's founded it upon the the seas and established it upon the rivers and then we looked at this and this is what we read today already who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false and doesn't swear deceitfully all right get what's going on here Psalm 2 said I have installed my king on Zion on my holy hill Psalm 2 says that that king, when he comes, will have an inheritance of the nations. Psalm 8 says that king, when he comes, all things will be placed under his feet. And Psalm 24 is going, okay, well, who is this king going to be? What sort of king, what would be the character of the king that could possibly come into such a great and grand inheritance? And Psalm 8 is a reflection, only a perfect and righteous king could reign from Zion in that way he would be the only one worthy to come into the inheritance where he would be the only one worthy to rule over the nations and he would be the only one worthy to have all things placed under his feet he would be a person who has clean hands and a and a pure heart right well we got a problem because we read this psalm as our psalm of confession this morning because none of us fit this bill. In fact, so I had uh, the Mormon, the, Mormon friends in high school. And they actually used this verse to tell me about that only a person who is perfect and, and, and morally pure could come into God's presence. And they're, they're, what they were saying to me was, this is why we have to reform ourselves. And this is why we have to get better and better and better. And I believe they missed the whole point of the psalm. The point of the psalm is not that you can make it or that I can make it. The point of the psalm is none of us are worthy to ascend the Lord's holy hill and to come into that inheritance that Psalm 2 and Psalm 8 talk about. And so look look at what we're looking for. Suddenly in verse 17, the psalmist sees someone coming up the hill. He sees someone coming up the hill, ascending to the Lord's holy hill, and he starts saying to the gates, Hey, gates, wake up. Lift up your head, ye gates. Be lifted up, O ye ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. So there's one one person who is worthy to ascend the hill to reign from Zion and to come into this inheritance where he rules over the nations and all things are placed under his feet. And the psalm asks the question, who is this king of glory? Who is worthy to ascend the Lord's holy hill? Who can it be? Almost like coming up through the fog, who can this king be And then the psalm answers the question, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? And he answers it, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And that's where the psalm ends, and it blows our minds. We're waiting for this human king, this descendant of David, this son of Adam to come into his inheritance. And we we, we look and we say, Who could possibly ascend the hill? And we say, No one, no one, no one could possibly ascend the hill. And then we see someone. Who is it? It's the Lord himself. He's the king of glory. How can this be? How can he be both a descendant of David and the Lord himself? How can this be? It doesn't make any sense, particularly in Jewish monotheism. This makes no sense at all. How can the descendant of David ruling from Zion be the Lord of God himself? Well, then we get into some strange Psalms. We get into a Psalm like Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is a song of admiration. Psalm 45 is a love song penned to the king of Israel. It was possibly sung at one of his marriages. Psalm 45 is not written by David, but written by one of the the psalmists in David's court. It's a psalm of admiration. But look at verses 6 and 7. This gets crazy. Psalm 45, verse 6. The psalmist is... Is proclaiming his admiration for the Davidic king. And then he says in verse 6 Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You've Loved righteousness and hated wickedness, but then it gets even crazier in verse 7. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness of beyond your companions. So he's he's praising the Davidic king, he's praising this son of David, but he suddenly calls out to him: Your throne, oh God, has has been is forever and ever. And then he makes this distinction between the God he is speaking of, the Davidic King, and the God who has anointed the Davidic King. Psalm 45 blows uh, blows our mind in the context of, of Jewish monotheism. That this 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 son of David, who's given the title son of God, who's revealed in Psalm 24 of being the Lord of hosts himself, is now in verse in, in Psalm 45 called himself God. God anointed by God to reign forever and to reign, I love this, to reign in joy. That this Davidic king, when he comes, the Lord of hosts himself, he is coming to reign over a joyous kingdom. It's not the only psalm where this happens. The admired righteous king is is God himself anointed by God to reign forever in joy. That brings us to Jesus' and the apostles' favorite psalm, Psalm 110. This psalm is quoted more in the New Testament than any others. And look at how this starts as well. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies your footstool. So Jesus had a question For the pharisees and the teachers of the law he said there's no higher king than david right i mean after david you you know the kings actually got morally and morally worse so how could david speaking in the spirit be speaking of his son but call him his lord how could a son of david be greater than david to the point where he's called lord himself He's speaking of a greater king. And so David is meditating on this reality that even though he's enthroned as king in Jerusalem, given this promise that God is going to be a father to one of his descendants, David is meditating and prophesying that there is a greater king, even the Lord, whom he will give homage, homage to. The king appointed by God to be his deci- his Messiah. And so David in his... Think about this. David is the greatest king. He's he's king over Israel. It's a prosperous country. But David bows his knee to the son who will come. He knows a greater king is coming and that his throne is a shadow of a greater reality to come. And, And maybe this is what... Maybe this sets David into reflecting. He's not the first king to reign from Jerusalem. There's another king that reigned before him, a king that was so great that even Abraham, David's great forefather, gave homage to and bowed down before. There was this king 1,000 years ago named Melchizedek who also was the king of Jerusalem. And he wasn't just the king. Melchizedek was not just king. He was priest. Now, in David's time, you couldn't be king and priest together. that The offices were separate. But David is looking back to this great king that once ruled in Jerusalem, and he's looking forward to this king who will come from his own line, and he realizes there's going to come a time again where the offices of king and priest are going to be united. And so he says later in the psalm, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Last week, we looked at this. Last week in, in, in Christmas in the Law of Moses, we looked that the Law of Moses declared that an offspring of Eve and an offspring of Abraham would come and he would be king, prophet, and priest. We, 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 talked, we looked at the book of Leviticus last week. The Le, book of Leviticus is all about God's holiness and how we cannot approach God because he is too holy, right? Psalm 24, who can ascend to God's holy hill? None of us. We need someone to ascend for us. We need a priest to mediate for us, to bring an appropriate sacrifice for us that we might be cleansed and made holy and made pure, that we could come into God's presence. And so the Holy Spirit reveals to David that from him will come a great king greater than himself, So much greater, it's not blasphemy to call him Lord. This king in the psalm will execute judgment over the nations, yet himself will be a priest forever. Well, if he's a priest, what sort of sacrifice will he bring? Two more Psalms Psalm 40. What sort of sacrifice will this Melchizedekian priest bring? Psalm 40 the priestly king brings the sacrifice of his own body, as foretold by prophecy. Psalm 40 is again a psalm of David. And in the psalm, David is facing a grave trial, but he anticipates that the Lord will deliver him. And about halfway through the psalm, in verse 6, David speaks of the sacrifice that he as king will bring to the Lord. David, as I said, wasn't able to bring sacrifices at the temple. He'd have to bring his sacrifice to a priest who would make a sacrifice on his behalf. Yet he is speaking not only of himself, he's speaking of his son, that perfect king who will come. And he says in verse 6, it's a very interesting translation, uh, in, in, uh, in our English Bibles, Translated from the Hebrew text, it says, In sacrifice and offering, you haven't delighted, but you have given me an open ear. The Septuagint, the Greek Bible that the uh, apostles used, uh, translated the second part of that verse as, In sacrifice and offering, you've not delighted, but you have prepared my body. Now, I, I'm not going to get into the technical explanation of why those two things are translated the way they are. All, all I will say is, Both translations speak to the same thing. The idea of opening the ear or piercing the ear was of a servant, a person offering himself fully to be the servant of another. That's what that translation of you have opened my ear or pierced my ear. If it's you open my ear, it's this idea that you've given me ears to hear so I will obey. And the Septuagint translation, you've prepared for me a body, again means my entire self I bring to you as in offering and so all three no matter how you translate it it actually has the same meaning meaning you don't you don't delight in anything i can bring you but what i have to bring you is all of me i bring you all of me i bring you my my ear i bring you my my obedience i bring you my myself i bring you my body and the author of Hebrews picks up on this and says, what is the offering this Melchizedekian priest is going to bring to the Lord? He is going to bring himself. This, this, this king priest will be offering not the blood of bulls or rams or goats. He's going he's to bring himself to fulfill this prophecy. So the priestly king brings the sacrifice of his own body as foretold in prophecy. That's right, it says... You can tell David is speaking not of himself because he says, Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. Therefore, it's prophesied that this king, this son of David, this Lord of hosts, will bring as an offering his own body, which brings us to the last psalm, Psalm 102. The suffering king will rise to reign in mercy forever and will appear in glory, appear in glory before a future generation. Psalm 102 is really complex, and so I'm not going to get into much this morning. You can go and study it on your own. But it begins as if it's a psalm of prayer from someone who's afflicted. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me and answer me speedily in the day that I call. It, it actually finishes, oh, sorry, You're not going to be able to do that. Oh, it finishes at the bottom, the last line. This is how it finishes. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. So this is a person who is thinking that he is just about to die. Yet there are some things in the psalm that suggest we're not just simply to take this psalm as a simple psalm of affliction that anyone can pray. Because the psalm actually says later, it's not written for the psalmist. It's written for a, a people for a generation to come. So Psalm 102 is the psalm of a guy who's suffering and seeing his death, but he's saying this psalm is not written about me. It's written for a people for generations to come. From the psalmist's perspective, he's, he's literally telling us the psalm is not a general word of assurance that could be prayed by anyone at any time, but it's an explicitly prophetic psalm. It's a prophetic writing written for a time that was future to the psalmist. And so we're left to understand to what generation and what age is this psalm written for? Now, There's one verse here, verse 23, that's difficult to translate in English, but it gives us the key of what's going on in the rest of the psalm. In verse 23, it says, He's broken my strength, and in mid-course, which is a really weird sentence that I don't understand, but the Septuagint again tells us exactly what the Hebrew means. It says this, He answered him in the way of his strength. Meaning that in this psalm, which is why it's so complex, you actually have three people talking. You have the he who answers the cry, you have the one, the him who is crying out, and then you have the psalmist who's recording. The, what what Psalm twenty, what verse 23 tells us is this is a conversation going on between different people. And so this is a conversation that the book of Hebrews tells us is a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And when you read Psalm 102 that way, it opens up just this amazing conversation report of a conversation between God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. So so reading it in that way, the verse 1 to 11 is the cry of the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's crying out, Jesus Christ calling out to the Father, explaining how his timely death is right in front of him, and his days are like an evening shadow, and he will wither away like grass. The answer from God the Son from God the Father to the Son is twofold you do not you will not wither away like grass because of old you laid the foundation of the earth the heavens are the work of your hands you are the same and your years have no end and verse 12 the father says to the son you O Lord are enthroned forever Right, this is the promise given to that Davidic king, but this is the promise given to God the Son. You, O Lord, he calls him, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory, verse 6. So this is a psalm written for Jesus, the son, Jesus comforted himself with these words in the garden. Father, I'm in anguish. Father, take this cup from me. Father, if there's any other way to bring about the salvation of humanity, let this cup pass from me. And the father responding to him, no, 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 my son, you will be enthroned forever. This is not the end. You will rise again and nations will bow before your glory. This is Psalm 102, the suffering king will rise to reign in mercy forever and will appear in glory before a future generation. Oh my goodness. This is Christmas in the Psalms. This is a full picture of who Jesus Christ is and the work he will do in a book written a thousand years before he comes. Uh, the 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 summary i know i'm supposed to when i preach and maybe this isn't a good sermon so forgive me but i know i'm supposed to have like a little like thing you can take home like a little little nugget to to cling on to this is as much of a nugget i could get it down to all right this is it who is jesus in the psalms what is christmas in the psalms what is the point of all these christmas carols here it is and and if you if you can just let this fill your heart and overflow with praise to jesus then that's the only thing i desire this this christmas here's jesus here's christmas in the psalms a perfectly righteous descendant of david the anointed son of god will ascend to rule from zion he will be given dominion over all nations and the entire created order He will be revealed by God to be the Lord God himself, although he will continue to speak with God as his own father and Lord. He will reign forever as king and priest, and he will offer his own body as a perfect sacrifice, only to rise again in glory to rule over all, extending mercy to all who hope in him. And that is what Christmas is. Christmas is our longing For our Messiah, for our Savior King to come. Christmas is recognizing that he did come. He came in humility the first time. He came in humility as the son of Adam, the descendant of of David. He came into his own. His own people received him not. But we are still awaiting for the promise for when the Lord God will put everything under his feet and he will come into his rule. That's what we were waiting for. The first advent, waiting for Christmas, leads us into the second advent, waiting for his return. And we get all these things through the Psalms. And so I just want to leave you with three things. This is, this is it. This is the, the fullness of what I wanted to leave you with. This perfectly righteous descendant of David, the anointed son of God, ascending to rule from Zion, given dominion over all nations, the created order, revealed by God to be the Lord himself, though he'll continue to speak with God as his own father and Lord, reigning forever as king and priest, offering his own body as a perfect sacrifice to rise again to rule over all. Oh, Zali, can you click ahead? Somehow we got... Somehow we got off here. Oh, that's it. That's all I have. Sorry. Three three things I want to leave you with. And this first one, just this. Listen, I could only go into like an overview today. My prayer for you would be this. Never get over the depths of the pictures of Christ found in the Old Testament. Today, and I'll tell you, there's this conversation going on within evangelicalism about whether or not evangelicals today, modern Christians, even need the Old Testament. Whether we should ever even preach from the Old Testament. Whether the Old Testament would be a stumbling block because it's too complex for modern Christians and modern people. We just need to see Jesus. Well, I'm telling you, never get over the depths of the pictures of Christ You'll find in the Old Testament. It is hard. It's harder. Sometimes you have to mine into them. I'll I'll tell you this everything I learned about the Psalms, I learned from the book of Hebrews. Almost everything I presented to you today is from the book of Hebrews. Almost everything. In fact, I just picked these Psalms because they're all written about in the book of Hebrews. But the depth of the picture of Christ, not only the hope to remember what he did when he came in his first coming, but the hope of what he's going to do when he returns. It's all there for us. Proclaiming to us that no matter how dark our world gets and no matter how disfigured our world gets and no matter how corrupt our leaders get, there will come a king. And so don't ever get over the depths of the pictures of Christ found in the Old Testament. Secondly, I would say this. This whole point of this season is to worship Christ. Christ. It's, it's not about presents or candy or candy canes or cookies. I love all that stuff. But the whole point of this season is to worship Christ, to take time over the next two days to sit with your Bible, to, to, to dig into it and say, Christ, fill my heart with the joy of worshiping you. Fill my heart with the peace of knowing that you are a king who's going to come, and once you come, your throne can never be shaken. Fill up your heart with him. So much of our troubles and trials in our life and so much of our anxiety and our panic in our life is because we are filling up our hearts with looking at the things of this world that are so easily shaken. Take some time over the next two days and worship Christ. And third, rest your heart in him. Rest your heart in him. Stop striving. Know that he is God. Rest. Rest. That's what trust is. That's what faith is. Rest your hearts in God and in the Savior he's promised.